0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is...
1: Anne Pasek.
0: And Anne, it's really wonderful to be with you. I've already admired your brilliant coffee-slash-tea cup, which is almost a mug, I think. It's pretty impressive, right?
1: Yeah, we go hard for mugs here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's really a joy to be sitting down and... and gossiping. We just had a 10-minute a gossip that I tried to dedicate entirely to myself and did pretty well at, I thought. But that's, that not, what we, that's not what we're here for today, Prof. We're here um, and to talk about your work, your wonderful contributions. I'm a big fan. But before that, before talking about the past, which in some cases is only a few months back, in some cases almost a decade back, Want to ask you about what's dynamizing you, preoccupying you, troubling you, interesting you now, right here and now? Yeah, you know,
1: I think a big part of of any answer that I give to those questions these days uh, tends to orbit around climate change. I I joke sometimes to my students that I am professionally anxious about climate change. Um, you know, it it's uh, uh understandably to to many of us right a big concern, but. Part of the the joys and uh, uh, difficulties of being an academic and academic freedom is that you get to sort of pick your preoccupation. So uh, I've tried to throw myself at at um, this big topic um, in much of my professional life and and um, much of my my time outside of that as well. Um, and, you know, if you meet people in the movement, uh, as perhaps you yourself have experienced, because I know you've worked in this area quite substantially too, right? Um, uh, there's a trick to finding ways to sort of in, uh, engage and keep engaging year after year with uh, grim topics, <laughs> stuff where, where hope mm-hmm. might be kind of hard to come by. Um, so for me, the, the strategy that I have found that works best is just to have multiple projects on the go at the same time that touch on some part of the bigger problem. And let you kind of cycle through different postures or, or attitudes or audiences and thinking about, you know, your relationship to the big scary thing. Um, mm-hmm. so right now, uh, I'm, I'm finally after taking a bit of a pandemic hiatus, returning to work on a, a book project, um, thinking about the difficulties of communicating about, uh, carbon, uh, making a chemical element that is everywhere and seemingly in everything into an object of cultural meaning and social significance and political action. Yes, Um, I'm also, uh, I've got a bunch of projects looking at how the tech sector has been approaching climate change. Um, And, you know, there's a, there's a range of, of stuff there again, as I'm sure you and your listeners all know um, some greenwashing, some half measures some very confusing venture capital business and then also i think some kind of savvy political economic maneuvering um that that as a sort of sideline marxist is fascinating and worrying both to track um and then finally i i also uh, have a tendency towards uh, the self referential so part of uh my time thinking about the problem goes into thinking about what it looks like here in the academy um so I I have brought together a little network called the Low Carbon Research Methods Group that is uh, trying to grapple with the question of um how we can both uh mobilize the research sector to to be a big part of energy transitions and climate justice to to you know uh do our work uh, where we can do it best uh to to move the needle and then also, hopefully, um, in the process, um, win some big coalitions that that can help fight for you know a different kind of academia in the process, not just one where we are you know uh, admitting less carbon for the green deal of it, but one where that is a kind of meaningful step towards structural changes that uh, can win some interesting equity and epistemological gains. Um, so yeah, that that and more, but but there's there's three doors we could walk through. <laughs>
0: And to complicate things by veering around the doors, but actually going towards the first one, I think, you said these things with a smile on your face, and I think people could probably hear that as well. And this, I think, is probably a way of managing that issue that you began with, namely presenting doom and gloom to young people Mm. is worrisome and wearisome for you Mm -hmm. and them. And this reminds me of some debates when I was in college, when the expression humorless feminist was first used ah. and started to be embraced by young feminists in the mm-hmm. late 70s. The killjoys out there. Yeah. I'm, I'm a humorless feminist. And I feel as though that issue applies to environmentalists, ecologists, whatever one term one might use. A message of horror, which is what feminism then as now needed to bring, along with a message of joy and unity and solidarity and hope. Yes. So mm-hmm. a humorless tree hugger is unfortunate, but the smiling tree hugger, <coughs> who can also grimace when called upon to do so, I think is more helpful to give people hope, but also to say, I'm not a scold. I'm not yes. here to tell you off.
1: Yeah, I, um, I, I agree wholeheartedly, and um, uh, I I occasionally uh pretend to be a a communication studies scholar who who uh, follows empirical research and can give conclusive facts about the world and the truth of communication. I think we all know that that's far more vexed than a lot of the quantitative studies will will sometimes make it seem. Um, but when I teach communication to science uh, students in particular, yes, um. Part of the message I, I keep trying to convey is that, um, you know, people tune out, drop out of these conversations, not because they don't care, but because they care too much, because it's, it's really overwhelming oh, to sit true. with, um, yeah, the, the reality that we are uh, heading towards, um, many big and small miseries, right? Um, so part of the, the political work of uh, climate action is emotional work. Uh, and I think one of the best methodological tools and pedagogical tools is just getting quite practiced in the art of empathy. Um, so being curious about how people are feeling about their climate feelings. Um, and, you know, I, I think that <laughs> that's also a tool we can practice with ourselves. Right. Um, it's it's a bit hokey, but uh, my God, I think it's it's really at the heart of the matter.
0: I think you're really onto something. And actually, last night I was recording a podcast with Kathy Davidson, And one of the things she talked about was, oh, hello.
1: Yes, there's a very
0: curious cat. What's what's the podcat's name?
1: This is Toast. Um,
0: Toast. She is uh, always keen to rush my Zoom calls. Oh, sweet. Well, yeah, mine is currently in what my my younger daughter and I call the invisible hour, which is when Mm. he curls up and more or less allows me to do things. The trouble is he curls up on the desk, on the chair of my desk. So this is why I am actually using a laptop as a laptop. <laughs> any solid I... surface would mm. be prohibited by him. In any event, yes, I think that's wonderfully put. And one of the things that came up with Kathy last night is, I guess, an obvious thing, but why don't we ask our students more why they're there and what they want? Mm. And I don't mean in some idiotic neoliberal surveillance form produced by the Bureau. I mean, in class. You
1: know? Yeah, yeah. I think um oh that's an interesting question because I, I, I imagine my students have many, many answers, right? Some of them are pretty instrumental. They they would like a grade please so that they can, you know, it's... graduate and their parents won't regard it's... them with scorn. And that's fair um, enough. That's fair enough. But but I think uh, you know, uh uh as you can tell I have my sentimental sides and I I, I, I see that also in my students. A lot of them um are kind of looking for adults with answers and, uh, failing that, um, uh, someone to kind of share feelings of uncertainty and worry with. So, um, you know, I, I, the surface is in the classroom a lot. And, um, one of the things I I keep trying to get better at is, is, um, really queuing in to, to, uh, you know, uh, often it shows up through kind of black humor, um, almost all the classes that I teach are about climate change. So this is sort of part and parcel of it. But um, yeah, you know,
0: the feeling of hopelessness, the
1: threat of that is always in the room.
0: So um, I think you've published on the anxiety of about yeah. climate change, haven't you? Maybe some little while ago, I think.
1: Yeah, there was a short piece that I had out in social media and society uh, yeah. called On Being Anxious About Digital Carbon Emissions. And again, it was it was kind of this self reflexive part where, um, you know, uh, as I mentioned, like part of my research interests looks at the climate impacts of the tech sector, and uh, there's there's so much uh, very exciting data a person can find um, mm-hmm. quantitating quant- quantifying all of the material impacts of mm-hmm. sending an email or um, you know storing a photo in the cloud for a year and my field of, of study, environmental media studies uh you know this is this is kind of like very validating to our concerns and we're very apt to to you know, want to repeat this information endlessly and
0: it can kind of um
1: <laughs> cast us as the scold um yeah, yeah, gotcha.
0: to... you're bad you've got a telephone in your hand
1: yeah yeah and then you know um <laughs> I, I think it's it's a kind of interesting cycle with um the work of of the critic or the critical um right there's there's so much value in being able just to kind of name uh, false idols and um uh, argue for alternatives and uh continue to sort of emphasize the the harms that exist in our systems that we're not seeing um but that can also kind of wrap around to um uh, you know as you've highlighted yourself in other instances right a kind of like green liberalism where uh the only action on the table is to take less actions um So, you know, uh, uh, part of what I was pondering through in that piece is how that works with uh, basic stuff around, um, you know, environmental impact statements for Zoom in your course or um, doing creative, like low energy, uh, in my case, solar powered uh, web design infrastructure projects. Um, There's all kinds of ways that people are sort of, you know, moving through their anxieties and how we uh, not only study technology, but but use it and practice it and and experiment with it. And I think part of part of the trick is just to say, like, we're doing this because we're anxious. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes that that anxiety can be a kind of way to to build coping strategies that are helpful, uh, like personally, sometimes less so. But the most promising of them, I think, are ones where we are uh using this as an opportunity to build new skills and um build yeah. new new social connections. So that's that's my advice to my students, right? Um you want to find some part of the problem that you can dig into um and where you can find people, you know, join a social movement. Don't just fret about <laughs> your personal carbon footprint. Um so yeah.
0: And speaking of the 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 carbon word one of the first things you mentioned in your opening words was that you're studying the culture of carbon Well, that's my mm-hmm. shorthand for it now it I sounds like that. Like it's a fairly it's an evolving project but could you tell us a bit about that it sounds really interesting to me
1: yeah so i think um like like many people uh my age i'm i'm in my 30s um uh, the sort of hot new theoretical turn when we were coming up through our PhDs was new materialism. So, you know, we were going to, we were going to delight in the the empirical world. We're going to uh, get very, very enthused about ontology. Um, and quite often that results in um, a kind of methodological orientation where we find a thing and we follow it, you know, um, we we are sort of putting all of our analytic eggs into the basket that um uh, there's obdurate material stuff that uh our accounts of culture need to kind of accommodate themselves to. And I think climate change motivates a lot of uh people who are who are so moved, right? Like we could think about um Latourist has critique run out of steam um article is always kind of top of mind when i when I sort of trace that history because I think like uh the problem of climate change is is not one that we're going to solve with language alone. so the the tools of the cultural critic, I think need to. In a way, be be readjusted and resharpened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the the sort of motivating problem for the book, um, and you know, maybe one hopes there is a, a contribution there that can can reach beyond just theory heads um, in the Anglophone academy. But uh, climate change doesn't have a, a solid thing that we can point to, right? It's a a problem of the imbalance of the fast and slow carbon cycles in our geophysical system. Um, uh, a good shorthand, right, is that it's a problem of fossil fuels and we're burning them to put more carbon in the atmosphere. But the further you get into um, science and different social movements that form around this stuff, the more you realize that, like, the lack of having the stable, like, referent, the the ways in which uh, carbon can mean many different things, uh, very few of them that come in, like, sensory um, tangible, motivating terms is a problem for climate politics. Because, um, you know, it's a chemical element, it is in everything. And uh, the, the sort of cuts that we make to say this is relevant to climate politics and this isn't um, are contingent and are often being um, re engineered as uh, interesting speculative geoengineering technology emerges or as, you know, different social movements make different gambits so there's there's gonna be a chapter in there about climate denialism, which I think is a really interesting It's always good to study your enemies and to see if they're stealing your stuff and if you want to steal their stuff um because there's there's a group of people out there I could tell you that have succeeded in in making carbon something that is very socially compelling um but predominantly through uh Curious and and pretty white supremacist sort of appeals to their body as something that because we exhale carbon dioxide, um, carbon dioxide can't be a pollutant because um, that would imply that they are polluting bodies and that's just you know not going to to be a sort of um, a politically or emotionally comfortable <laughs> space to dwell in. So there's there's this interesting refusal of bad feeling that that I think motivates quite a lot of um these political maneuvers um uh to not deal with the problem or to deal with it through a kind of defiant um uh myth making about how carbon dioxide is a is the elixir of life. And um, we are enriching our atmosphere by by making more of it available to plant life in ways that will um, be be good for all uh, humankind and all life on Earth, such that even if we run out of fossil fuels, we should dig up limestone and burn it to keep, keep producing it in the atmosphere. Um, that's a really extreme example, but I, I think it's a kind of useful one for how I orient myself in the project because Um, You know, it is just sort of tracing people around and seeing how they uh, can can use culture resources to make uh, the mutable uh, contingent and changing character of how carbon moves around in the earth. Something that we care about Um, and how there are are so many different kind of like vernacular theories of the materiality of this stuff that um, people are trialing, are experimenting are putting into spreadsheets, are, um, you know, building into moral projects, are getting into fights about in scientific papers, because uh, we're all kind of grappling with how we, we should sit with and live with um, a, a world where um, the climate is changing and we are changing it and where the prospects of repair are um extremely urgent and extremely, extremely difficult, uh, ever more so as as the days go on. So um, that hopefully, you know, is a kind of helpful shorthand of what, what I'm up to there, awesome. uh, trying yeah. to find a way to, you know, encourage new materialist theory to think about, I don't know, the inframaterial, what happens when our objects shift and move around and change and uh, elude easy recognition and then also how culture comes in to try and supply those answers and how it thinks about the material
0: um yeah might i ask a biographical question here certainly it's, as a young girl growing up so let's take you back i don't know twenty twenty five years what was your sense of carbon i mean in let me take give it a shape before a did you mm. have a sense of it in terms of coal was coal part of your childhood, for example, growing up, or did you get a sense of it when it came to where electricity came from or where what made cars or buses go? Do you know what I mean? Did you have any of that?
1: Yeah, I think view? I think it was it was very abstract um right uh, uh, a sort of rudimentary climate science was built into our uh, like elementary and junior high curricula. And so, you know, there's this rough sense of like tailpipes somehow articulating to the atmosphere. Um, But uh, I also, uh, fun biographical detail about me, grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, which is the kind of administrative heart of the oil sands in Canada. So, um, as many, many really excellent scholars have done in the Petrocultures Research Group and in the wider field of uh, the energy humanities. There's a way in which you know, being in an oil town in an oil province kind of uh, involves living multiple truths at the same time. So uh, there's this real struggle to imagine what an alternative might look like. So it was certainly the case that I was vaguely aware that, you know, like oil and also electricity was was entangled in uh, this problem we were confronting. but uh, it was exceedingly difficult to imagine um what. Uh, its solution could look like you know
0: um, now that may allow you to empathize with the people <laughs> who think that they're, they're saving rabbits by breathing out co2 <laughs> and that may allow you also to comprehend as part of that empathy or alongside the structure of feeling mm-hmm. that dynamizes people i'm thinking here of mexico where as you know you're no doubt aware and many listeners will be but some may not the petroleum industry was nationalized in the 40s by Lázaro Cárdenas, a very charismatic, socialist-inclined president. <laughs> and it was nationalized through subscription. So grandmothers would auction off their hens in order to <laughs> give money to the state to buy the petroleum industry, to make it state owned that makes it so much part of a sense of national identity a bit like the oil tar the tar sands must in, in uh, edmonton yeah that um, there, people... uh... sorry go ahead
1: there's um there's a really great scholar shane gunster out of um simon Fraser or ubc somewhere somewhere in the fair city of vancouver sorry shane um who's is, who's is a great bit on the symbolic nationalism or nationalization of of canadian fossil fuels Uh, It's certainly the case that there's a a small amount of rent and tax revenue, but these are private corporations that are um, mining for oil up in Athabasca. Uh, But there's still, you know, again, how does that material layer and cultural layer come to articulate? Uh, Everything's covered in Canadian flags. There's huge sponsorship of of civic events. Um, Like, I have this fun little positional statement in the book manuscript where I reflect on the fact that, like... um, you know, uh, we are often quick to kind of use these like uh, uh, follow the money arguments about uh, structural influence in speech to render certain subjects incapable, right, of making a good faith contribution to a debate or of of articulating an opinion that that is meaningfully their own. But you know, by that same logic, like I, I I've gotten a right to talk about climate change because the oil industry in Alberta uh, pays out scholarships that. Um, got me through undergrad and, um, uh, funded some interesting internships that I did as a, as a very young adult. And, you know, we all have family members who work in the industry and, um, you know, the booms and busts of it really do, um, impact virtually every job sector. You know, we rise in sync with oil prices in ways that are, you know, demonstrably bad for us. We should find ways to uh, have a a more stable and um, agreeable (laughs) economic situation. Um, One of the things that environmental
0: activists in Mexico do is not to denounce petroleum and it's the exploitation of oil. It's a losing argument Mm -hmm. for ordinary people because it is so much a part of their sense of self, and it's utterly national. Instead, it's to say things like oil is not a renewable resource. Let's look at other things that we need to to do, right, and to just change the focus a little bit. But I think that's very important. What about um, sources of heat when you were growing up? Uh,
1: Lots of gas, gas furnaces. Lots of gas. Um,
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I, I I guess my, um, in Britain, I can remember the guy coming with the coal once a week, mm. huge black, in a sense, leaky blocks or not? they were not huge blocks. I mean, he'd come in with a sack with about 100 blocks. It would be about the size of your hand, roughly, mm. including fingers. And it would obviously be hurting him and his face would be blackened he was would be a white man and my parents would lay down newspapers for him to walk through the house without too much of the coal getting on the floor and then there'd be a coal box a huge coal box about the size of the kind of container people have if they've got four or five bicycles that they're maintaining in the exterior and he'd dump it there and then he'd come back he'd get a tip and he'd go and then we would burn it. But my memory from about 20 years later is the importance for those of us on the left of supporting coal miners and their families Mm -hmm. in their strike against the shutting down of the mines in Britain in the period 83, 84. Very famous strike. There are only Mm -hmm. a few pits left. And I look at that. I look back at it. I think about it and how it was romantic and it meant a lot to me, but I didn't think of it in environmental terms. I thought of it in terms of the desperate structures of the working class that were being crumbled, torn apart by the incredible nastiness of a vicious government, instead of thinking about what could have been done to restructure opportunities for those men, and they were mostly men, but of course there were lots of women doing unpaid labor who were part of their Mm. lives, part of that struggle. And all the horrors that tore people and friendships apart from people who crossed picket lines, that sort yeah. of thing. So I've got these two really powerful memories that are, they're not about family like yours are. They're not so consistent, but they have these two dramatic images for me. You know, one a very personal yeah. guy delivering the coal uh, and the other of a movement that I was, you know, a very an incredibly minor part of. That I cannot look back on with nostalgia.
1: I um, nostalgia is a funny thing. Uh, so I, I obviously didn't live through this history, but but nevertheless, one of my favorite T-shirts is a is a pits and perverts uh, graphic from the the queer solidarity organizing for that coal strike. Um, and, uh, you know, whenever I put it on, I, I there is this kind of like vertiginous moment where I'm like, this would be a very, very hard coalition to pull off today. Um, just, you know, all the queer circles I run in are, are full of very self-righteous environmentalists. Um, and I, I, I try to not, uh, you know, be only that, um, in, in that and other aspects of my life. But, it, you know, I think. Uh, you're you're quite right to point to this moment as a really curious one for uh, uh the kinds of solidarity that we we need more of today um but also that kind of outflowing of support um was articulated in uh just rigidly oppositional terms and like justly so margaret thatcher was being horrid um <laughs> It's hard not to want to say no before you say, you know, yes, and right, like things can get confused and muddled in in ways that um, can split rather than solidify uh, lines in the sand. So, you know, just to to sort of talk extemporaneously about where we are with climate politics at large, you know, it, it does seem like we need to have more spaces where people are coming together and really debating and working out like what vision of the future they want, what a good transition would look like beyond just, you know, some green job retraining and a pat on the back. And, you know, it's simultaneously one of those junctures where I feel simultaneous uh, hope and exuberance and, and great excitement because it seems like everything is up for grabs, right? Like if we're going to change everything, then there's so much we could change for the better. Um, there, there is just a kind of need for uh, people to do the the deep thinking and reflection of of building those better futures, um, uh, you know, in ways that, again, are culturally sticky and, and speak to more than just uh, carbon spreadsheets or dollars and cents, right? Like, I think truly everything is up for grabs. And so we should be talking about, you know, um, the length of the work week, Um Uh, convivial pleasures, libraries, um, all this and more.
0: And libraries, of course, are increasingly important places in the United States, I don't know about Canada, for the poor to find shelter in. Mm -hmm. Uh, A, it's often the only place where you can apply for a job or for a home, because you have to do that online. But B, it's not going to be wet, and it's not going to be cold. Yeah,
1: and... You know, during during um extreme heat waves, right? These are often part of municipalities, uh, like cooling centers, like public safety plans. So, yeah, we we do need uh, bread and roses. We need palaces for the yeah, people. We I, need absolutely. um. It's yeah. called
0: socialism, amongst other things.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: um, Prof, one of the first things you said was the word greenwashing when you were mm. talking about current interests. It's a term we read and use a lot these days it's been around almost 40 years how are you understanding it and what's your particular take on the phenomenon or the phenomena
1: yeah so i I think uh inexorably today to say that someone is greenwashing is to accuse them of uh bad faith right um this is the kind of uh judgment about uh, a cynical behavior of of sort of uh, willfully deceiving people into believing that you have more green virtues than you do through uh, uh, canny and callous uh, acts of communication.
0: Calling um, Justin so... Trudeau. Calling Justin Trudeau.
1: Or no. Calling Justin Trudeau a greenwasher or no. No, or... I mean, I'm just saying one might. One might. One certainly might. Um, Yeah. I, I, I it's interesting. It, corporations tend to receive the bulk of of this ire um rather than governments for you know I I think maybe not entirely justified reasons but uh in part because um you know to 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 wash is often to to make money right so there's a kind of profit incentive and again we're coming back to that that kind of sense of you know what what is the the most persuasive uh, uh uh, hermeneutic we can bring to bear on the world. For many people, it is um, following the money, and uh, quite often you can follow the money and find people, uh, you know, playing their cards um, unethically um, with with forewarning to you know uh, deceive. But I think there's also a tendency um, in environmental circles, in left circles, in in general, to kind of uh have this be a default answer and whenever there is any kind of gap between aspiration claim and results to be like that's just greenwashing and, you know that's certainly like a kind of intellectually safe move most of the time but uh, i i try to um uh, have that not be the only tool in the toolkit for me uh so i i end up studying uh uh, quite a lot of large tech companies that are that are exploring these different green initiatives. Um, uh, none of which are sufficient, right? Like no one has uh, solved the answer. No one is uh, able to to you know uh, cast a stone for they have not sinned. <laughs> <laughs> but I think trying to stay curious about why people are compelled to make these claims and what the work of half gestures does, not just for balance books, but for people's moral sense of self um, and, you know, uh, towards what might hopefully be a non-reformist reform someday. Like th- those are interesting and compelling questions to me. So um, like to give an example, uh, I- I'm part of this initiative studying subsidy cables along with Hunter Vaughn, who you uh, recently interviewed, um, as well as Nicole Saraselski and uh, Anjali Sugadev and we're we're having all of these chats with um you know uh, executives in this very niche but important um subsector of of big tech um and these are not people who uh, you know, um, lack moral cores. These are often quite compassionate, kind people who want to find some way to to make a contribution, a contribution that could make them money if they, you know, are able to say that they have particular green virtues that their competitor doesn't. But also as a kind of, you know, um, like everyone else, people want to feel like they have meaning in their lives and, and contribute uh, to impacting the world in a positive way. So part of the trick of sitting with greenwashing is trying to figure out um, where the deception is, right? Sometimes it's oriented towards a consumer. Sometimes it's self-deception on the parts of people uh, inside systems who are uh, inflating the value of the gestures they have at hand. Um, the the kind of non-disruptive um, actions a person can take to improve efficiency or to um you know, uh, improve transparency in a supply chain, uh, and one is sort of stuck in between um, <laughs> the scales of these gestures, wondering at the gap and sort of pondering how the kind of affective resources that that are clearly at play here might be maneuvered to do different things. And and I think we we're gonna get to that answer quicker and with a little more clarity. Um, again, if we stay curious. Uh, And tuned into the squishy feelings of it all, because that that seems to continue
0: to matter. Profe, I'm getting the sense that for you, finger pointing and scolding and attacking seem counterproductive and rather pointless in this field, perhaps in others. Identifying villains and then damnifying them—that this isn't what you think is helpful.
1: I, I there there are certainly moments of my life and and a lot that you could take from what I just said that that I think would confirm that but uh in other areas I think it's it's very important to get into fights and uh uh you know uh advance um a coalition that necessarily won't include everyone and that sometimes you have enemies you must defeat so to give an example uh, again I'm I'm working with uh insiders in this tech sector to try and sit with them to think about what sustainability improvements could look like in their industry. And it turns out um, there's there's lots that can be done. Uh, part of the trick is just getting people to talk to each other. Um, so I am playing this very, to me, curious role of, of being a kind of uh, uh, midpoint uh, between uh, very Privacy-oriented companies um, doing doing work for hire, trying to convince them to, you know, find some some improvements for the environment down the middle.
0: Oh. At the same
1: time, I, I've also published a zine called "How to Get into Fights with Data Centers," where I, I basically argue that the the best thing that we can do as individuals, uh, as consumers, is not worry about our own consumption, but Um, join social movements that are trying to oppose the expansion of data centers in different localities. And so I talk a little bit about how people can, um, with a couple of very basic, like, trace route tools, find where their data lives in the world and see if there are people who are negatively impacted by that data infrastructure, and how they can join them in opposing, uh, uh, you know, what in this story are very clearly going to be uh, just big bad villains, you know, the Googles and Microsofts of the world. Um sometimes you don't want to mediate sometimes you just want them to to step off
0: <laughs> right but so, i guess i i I hear you and i'm I apologize for caricaturing you as I did. I guess what i'm thinking is more in the context of greenwashing that mm-hmm. it's you know a bad accusation you're know, like calling somebody a right. fascist
1: huh
0: it 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 is a damning attribute or commentary, and so you're you're wanting not just to identify some miscreant and say, you're just a greenwasher. And this in part seems to derive from the fact you've actually met some of these people. And as you say, you know, these people, I mean, executives in big communications concerns who actually are not monstrous. They are profit oriented and yuck, but you know, I want to get paid for things so that I can run a podcast and, Mm They also do think about the problems with what they're involved in. That's what I hear you saying. And that maybe this is one of the benefits of tracking the material life of the sign to the point where you're actually speaking to powerful people rather than just having them as abstract entities.
1: Yeah. I I think, again, it it pays to be curious about... um uh you know uh the new spirits of capitalism the green spirit of capitalism uh there there's ways of kind of bridging our our interest in um the interior life of people in power with uh the kind of possible uh rhetorical moves that that seem to be available uh in those contexts but yeah i think i think my kind of critique of greenwashing isn't that it's never appropriate just that it's often a little lazy
0: Speaking of green spirits, when Keynes wrote about animal spirits of capitalism, that concept is often misunderstood because people don't read the rest of what he was on about. And, of course, he was referring to this as something necessary. Mm. Uh, The sudden drive when your pussycat leaps at something, and that's all that Tos can think about. No holding her back. (laughs) Right. That's it, right? And the same with mine and same with other animals such as ourselves often. But that that single-minded drive and allocation of resources can be utterly disastrous, of course, but it can be necessary, actually, mm-hmm. for the investment of human resources, natural resources, everything towards an end, right? That, turn, that switching point, as Foucault might have called it, between one discourse and another, one orientation, one point of investment, whatever it might be. The problem, of course, is that you need to have the ability to stand back for a moment and think more about what this implies rather than follow the money in the sense of try to make more money that comes Mm -hmm. with horrendous events like the Industrial Revolution, albeit events or moments or periodizations that incarnated extraordinary advances for many of us in terms of health and happiness, along with the, the entire opposite for many more other people. So I, I think yeah. that there's something there that's very valuable to try to ponder how to harness those energies and acknowledge their value, but in a way that allows one to step back.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, if you're willing, I, I, I would love just to to sort of lay cards on the table and, and chat a bit about um, where you think this all might be going because, you know, my my kind of um, uh, statistically average uh, over the course of many ways that I think about the problem sort of approach to the next 20 years of climate action, uh, it, it seems like we're going to be in a really curious place where coalitional politics are going to be entirely necessary and very, very weird. Um, I think... You know, in order to build a big enough block to to win the changes that we need to win, uh, we're going to need to probably get into bed with some enemies. Uh, that probably means that there will be interesting intra-class conflicts to analyze and hopefully mobilize. Um, it seems like there are big ones stemming up uh, with the tech sector versus the energy sector. They're they're both um, antagonizing each other and courting each other in all of these curious junctures. So I'm not certain if um, we will see the prospects of the energy transition be one where one comes out on top or where one simply subsumes the other. Um, but in that kind of like shifting negotiations of of who has whose ear, you know, I, I really do think that's a space for people to push and to try and uh, extract as many concessions as possible, uh, trying to win a Green New Deal um, that will probably drive uh, considerable industrial growth, but hopefully in the context of that like last surplus um, sort of scenario where uh, sufficiently meeting people's ecological and economic needs creates a different horizon of possibility for struggle towards socialism in ways that, that will look uh, far more difficult than, or far more different than we can apprehend in the difficult present. these are the things that that fill my head. Uh, What's in yours?
0: I'm worried about so-called green colonialism. Mm, And the issues that that can produce. But at the same time, you can see around you, in ways that were clear in the United States in the 60s and 70s, people barely able to breathe in LA Mm. for all the lead basis to petroleum. People... Finding their local lakes and water resources polluted everywhere across the country that led to, amongst other things, the anti-pollution movement. I think about daily life in China and India and in the big Mm -hmm. cities and the horrendous public health impacts that are being experienced because of the boom in CO2, uh, the boom in petroleum emissions, the boom in what many people don't recognise, but the incredible environmental impact of construction, concrete. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so on the one hand, I get the argument that the desire on the part of members of an international white bourgeoisie to say, stop, don't do what our forefathers mostly did, can be derided. But I think that's a short-term view and a, a cheap argument because Mm -hmm. three countries that are currently destroying the planet directly are the United States, China, and India, and per capita the climate criminal countries are Norway and Australia. I just don't think there's any... (laughs) Hmm? Canada too. We're very bad. People like me can never think of Canada as being naughty because we have this awful stereotype we mobilize all the time of you, which I know isn't fair, and I'm sorry because it's... But Canada's up there. But I think Norway and Australia per capita are pretty amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Norway, because it's got so few people, but it's such a a, a carbon criminal. And Australia, mm-hmm. because, you know, we wouldn't have any of this crap in India and China without those bastards.
1: Yeah, all the they're so, cool.
0: Yeah. Oh, and, you know, just about every conceivable natural resource you could name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, the Swedes are about to become that with their mad adventures in the north. Uh, to replace rare earth minerals, uh, uh, to replace China as the kind of key supplier thereof. But um, those are the countries that need to change what they're doing really radically and dramatically. But of course others do too. But if you look at where the worst carbon emissions are coming from, there are three gigantic countries with huge populations that are deeply problematic. Now, the problem is that two of those have suffered horrendously from xenophobia, racism, and Western imperialists, very directly in the case of India, slightly more indirectly in the case of China, because it wasn't occupied by the British in the same way that India was, though it had its share of that, of course. And I get why there is resistance at the same time as you've only got to look at public health data and the fact that there are important environmental movements in those countries that together... Can make for a change. In the case of Norway and Australia, the level of duplicitous self satisfaction is so intense um, that who knows? But what I also think, in terms of hopeful signs for the future, is that all this crap about what is your carbon footprint as an individual is going to be replaced by I am one of, you know, a retiree, a worker, a citizen, a migrant, or whatever. And there are people somewhat like me in other parts of the world that I need to relate to. Mm -hmm. And I need to relate to them in some of those roles, along with other ones like parents and, you know, women and all kinds of other subject positions that we hold that are just as crucial. But going to relate to them, not as I'm a consumer of a cell phone that someone in China makes who has to wear a silly hat and work many hours and it's not very nice and it's boring and repetitive, and that someone has to dig around in quasi-enslavement in the Democratic People's Republic of Congo in order to obtain the natural resources to provide the preconditions for that manufacturing in China. Not I'm a consumer, but I'm a worker. And I probably work under better conditions than those folks, though not necessarily, since smartphones are used by many people who have very, very impoverished lives in other ways. And I want to be able to relate to them. I want to communicate with them. I want to feel some of the sense of frustration as well as joy that can come with, if not labor itself, then the fruits that it may produce, even if that Mm. is nothing more than keeping your family alive or preventing repeated sexual assaults on your your mothers. In the case of many young people in Mm -hmm in these slavery circumstances. So my hope is twofold. One, that two of the three big criminal polluters in general, China and India, are suffering so much that the kind of moves we saw made to get rid of leaded petrol in the US slowly but got there, more or less, in California, and all the other anti-pollution movements that led to things like the Environmental Protection Agency. Remember the creation of the Republican Party? That mm-hmm. that sort of maneuver is going to come and in a bigger way, a more comprehensive way and a smarter way in China and India, because, as you will know, so much of the valuable academic work being done on things like the environmental impact at the point of creation, use and destruction of communications technologies is done by Chinese scientists, Indian scientists and African scientists. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of hope in, on that score and that that impact on the market will eventually mean that criminals like Norway and Australia become less important. You can include Canada in that, you know, fair enough. Thank you. Thank Canada you. becomes yes. less important. I, I, I do apologise. I am, <laughs> you know, unlike, unlike everybody else in the world, I am prone to stereotypes. Uh and I also have hope at the level of this sort of communication, the kind of empathy that I think you're talking about that can occur if people stop thinking about I'm a bad consumer or I'm a good consumer and start thinking about literally the life of the commodity sign and how they play parts in the lives of commodity signs, but not just as customs. Mm.
1: Yeah, I am... I, um... I think I'm hearing across both of our, our, our comments here. Uh, there's a way in which we're kind of bullish on cultural studies to sort of uh, inveigh helpfully upon the problem, right? Like there's a need for conjunctural analysis here, I, I think, in, in big, bright terms. And, you know, the work of many, many hands to be sure there. But um, it, it really is how people are coming together or being pulled apart into different coalitions and different um, structures of feeling and, and possibilities of moral concern. And I'm, I'm also with you in thinking that labor can be a really interesting and underutilized um, uh, space for building some of that solidarity um, but in ways that for me like articulate to the emotional part. Um, I just finished a paper looking at worker accounts in um, regenerative agriculture and biochar, Just like people who have firsthand uh, experience um, with their, you know, with their hands um, uh, doing climate restoration work, as it were. And it seems like their emotional landscape is entirely different from the stuff that I talked about in my classroom. You know, people... Want to change the world in ways that matter, and uh, the more tools we can put in front of people, the the better uh, chances I think we'll have of of being able to have productive discussions and debates. And part of that is bringing people back into activism, reskilling people, um, building up the union movement, um, uh, giving people opportunities to fight for for change. And part of it might also just be like you know, there, there is something kind of constitutive to the idea of like a green jobs guarantee, right? Like I know my students would rest so much easier if they had the assurance that they could go do, um, meaningful, well-paid work to push back some small corner of the problem that keep, that's keeping them up at night. So how we, we kind of, uh, Bring labor back into the picture, and how we continue to ponder, um, as as Marx teaches us, you know, uh, the mysteries of the commodity. Um, the, these are things that get me excited, um, and they they are kind of a a foothold in in what can be an otherwise bewilderingly large and
0: multifaceted
1: problem. So, thank thank you for that. I I am feeling hyped up.
0: Well, Prof, while you're still in that mode before you have to go for the next cup of coffee and the next little pat from your mm-hmm. meow meow. Why did mm-hmm. I say that? I sound like a five-year-old. It's terrible. <laughs> anyway, uh, I wanted to ask you two final questions and then hand over to you for things you might wish to add to what you've said or we've said or subtract mm-hmm. there from, if that's okay. So my first question is to ask you how you go about learning things because you've already mentioned... The need for, I think you're you implying, the need for being prepared to use quantoid and qualtoid methods rather than mm. say, I don't do that. So, could you tell us how you discover things?
1: Yeah, I, I think part of the pleasures of doing interdisciplinary research is that you get to feel like an imposter forever, um, and <laughs> that you get to keep learning how to do different things. Um, and you know i mentioned new materialism as a kind of important touchstone in the theoretical and methodological frameworks that i'm i'm playing in uh what that functionally looks like um is hilarious i spend too much time on youtube looking at instructional videos for how electricity works um uh, i'm going back to my high school chemistry to to be reminded like what are covalent bonds what what what's going on there um uh, and you know it, it's it's a little bit humorous to me uh because it it you know one is supposed to be an expert by now and yet i i am uh, constantly engaging in retreading um work oriented towards much younger people or work that i did when i was much younger but um it's generative uh, you know, I, I find that I am able to take things from that material that I never would if I was going into it purely for, you know, uh, receiving the knowledge and having it. And instead, there's a kind of curiosity that comes from um, uh, STS, from media studies, from um, sitting with the political trouble that uh, the work of empiricism puts in front of us. And and again, how we, we make that culturally sticky and meaningful inside a corporation inside a social movement and beyond it um and then I I don't know the other part is that I I I like to write with other people um this is something that that popped up to me um as a kind of survival strategy during the pandemic it was just
0: so much easier Mm -hmm.
1: to get work done if I was doing work with people that I liked and respected um and then it's also an opportunity again to kind of Um, pool expertise across many different uh, pathways through the university and through life and to um, think with people rather than at people um, which is always a virtue
0: Wonderful Thank you so much for that very generous answer and I I think that this desire to work collaboratively is one that I'm hearing from a lot of people Mm. uh, a lot of people in these discussions The other thing I'm hearing is an oscillation between hope and despair. Oh, yeah. Uh, I hear that very clearly in what you're saying. So my last question before throwing to you, uh, Prof Ann, is to ask you about ecofeminism. Where is it today? Does it matter? What part does it play in some of the work that you and your teammates are doing? Fascinating.
1: I mean... It's it's uh you're taking me back to I don't think this came up during my PhD comps exam but
0: it has that kind of quality <laughs> to it. Um, oh gosh, I, really, I... well 1978 <laughs> is when the term was first coined, I think, and so I'm I'm trying to propel you into the uh-huh. days of the 1970s of terrible fashion of Roger Moore's bad hairdos and uh, striped pants in James Bond polyester. So if you don't want to be there, it's fine. But
1: <laughs> I mean, I I think. Part of why the term kind of comes with a vintage is that um uh I think uh, the the necessity that that drove a lot of people into that project is certainly there, but the pathways are 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 quite fragmented right um mm. uh you know, many, many different roads to articulating an eco-feminist position, some of which drew on pretty essentialist tropes about the proximity of women and nature. Stacey Alimo has done some really great work um, thinking about how we can kind of um, have that political vibrancy without needing to, to fall into quite uh, all of those traps. Um, for me, though, the, the the pathway has been through feminist science studies um and the work of trying to um maintain a a, a critical but collaborative relationship with techno science knowing that um uh this can often be a source of reproducing social harms um but also a critical resource for uh finding nuances that can break problems open in new ways um so you know i, I think the best feminist politics that we had were coalitional politics, and that will remain to be the case as uh, uh, green disasters loom on the horizon. And so, you know, it, it isn't necessarily like a banner that I I hold up as such because um, it's it's in the DNA of, of of my upbringing as a scholar, but but not necessarily a. a yeah, now you got me curious. Why, why am I not waving an eco-feminist flag more loudly? Because in,
0: um, in the technology world that you're interested in, of course there are lots of women, but it's bro time. Oh, yes. Bro time, big time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and
0: the macho behavior of these dudes, most of them poorly educated and, and yet from wealthy backgrounds, most of them quite stupid, when you, one listens to what they have to say. And yet, of course, ingenious and managerially in some way competent. Yeah. Seems yeah. to me to have an element of hegemonic masculinity that is really important, even if you don't buy into woman equals nature, man equals culture. And that sort yeah. of binary that you were criticizing. Do you know what I mean? It's such a, mm. a male-dominated, mostly white-dominated, although there are lots and lots of, Chinese and South Asian people in, involved as well, and of course there's also Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the hegemones of these big corporations, they're either Chinese guys or they're Gringos.
1: I think for for me, I what's lighting up right now is um I mean the tech the tech sector definitely has gender stuff going on, um that that is 100 percent uh in in the stew and and having its effects, but um I think. It's also terribly important in in wider like climate denier spaces and and more quotidian forms of resistance. Like Kara Daggett has this really great concept about petro masculinity. Um,
0: Where uh, do I which, sign up?
1: Uh, it's uh, I mean you go down to your your local car dealership and you <laughs> uh, do some modifications. Um, but. Um, you know, there's ways in which uh, the impasse that we're sitting with our inability to kind of see a better uh, life uh, that we want to, to go out and fight and win um, is that, you know, uh, fossil fuels have been so intimately connected to our, our vision of a good life that is predicated around, you know, um, in many communities, like a male resource sector worker um, who provides for his family and uh you know is kind of at the root of that coal miner strike problem that you mentioned um certainly runs rampant throughout alberta and um uh, much of what we find in in like resistance to uh climate action um in sort of the kind of affective character of the ick some people feel around being scolded or being told to use less or be more efficient, like this is all just gender stuff at, at a certain level. Um, and so one thing I tell my students, one thing I'll tell your listeners is that, uh, you know, we're all sort of looking for spaces to dig in and make interventions to the big problem. One of those interventions can just be um, chipping back whatever small part of uh, the bad gender tropes and social training that we've received because I think that's also one of the things that's going to be up for renegotiation when we think about changing everything and uh, (laughs)
0: where those chips may fall. Beautifully put. Thank you. So um, Prof. Pasek, I'd like to hand it over to you now in case there'd be something you'd like to conclude with.
1: Yeah. Um, One, one small thing I'll, I'll give a shout out to, um, is the, the low carbon research methods group, um, which is just a, a really quite lovely collective of folks who uh, think with me and think together um, about this sort of self-reflexive turn. If, if you are one who feels so compelled to, to sort of ponder um, what climate change and climate adaptation and climate justice might look like for the university um, to sort of very tentative thesis that we've been putting forward is that we will probably want to think of a future where we are getting on less airplanes and think of a future where um, uh, easy, free, endlessly expanding data storage isn't a given. And if just because those are the kind of like brightest parts of of the emissions profile of the university sector. um, And what then do we do with that fact is the question. Uh we could be super anxious about it and and self-punishing and um, you know, uh uh hurry to try and change norms that encourage green behavior. And there's probably value to that. I, I don't want to dismiss those impulses as entirely politically uh dead on arrival. But for me, I think the more positive and encouraging direction would be to ask whether we could build a better and different academy, whether we could have different forms of knowledge production and exchange if we took airplanes and data centers out of the picture. So maybe this would be a world where we have more co-authors because we can't fly into a random community and like look at an archive for a week or study an ethnographic um, configuration and then leave. Um, I'm really interested in thinking about along with scholars like Mimi Scheller, right? Like uh, how mobility plays a really constitutive role in um, the distribution of privilege and of opportunity in the academy and how a green transition there could maybe open the door to uh, a different politics between global North South academic configurations. That's a really big thought, a thought that uh, we are all in this group and myself um, still very much thinking in the present tense, um, but a line that I wanted to cast out there to any listener, in case they were curious, we are um, happy to have more members in the group who who can add their their
0: uh, ingredients to the stew. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Professor Anne. It was fantastic to meet you and learn so much from you today. Thank you, Professor Miller.